The future of America is in your hands. This is not a movie trailer, and it's not a political ad, but it is a call to action. I'm Mila Atmos, and I'm passionate about unlocking the power of everyday citizens. On our podcast, Future Hindsight, we take big ideas about civic life and democracy and turn them into action items for you and me. Every Thursday, we talk to bold activists and civic innovators to help you understand your power and your power to change the status quo. Find us at futurehindsight.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. What could go right? A series of conversations that we are having under the auspices of the Progress Network, I'm Zachary Carabell. I founded the Progress Network. I'm with Emma Varvalukas, who's the executive director of the Progress Network. And we're doing a series of conversations with largely members of, yes, the Progress Network, about various and sundry views, ideas, issues. And there's probably no issue more top of mind these days. And whenever you're listening to this, these days will still be those days, I'm relatively sure. No issue is grappling American society more acutely than free speech and wokeness and cancel culture and race theory and how do we navigate our differences verbally? How do we figure out what to do with our passionate, intense disagreements? which is hardly a new thing either in American society or human society. But as we know, human societies have been rent violently from the Reformation to the Civil War by issues that we disagree with passionately. So words are just words until they're not. And how we manage to deal with these differences in the United States is crucial. How every society manages to deal with these passionate differences is vital to our stability combined with the issue of how absolute is the right of free speech irrespective of consequence? How much should government ever interfere with free speech? How much should this simply be left to civil society to work out? Uh, and there's a huge contrast obviously between the United States and the world. So it's with that in mind, uh, that we're speaking today with Suzanne Nossel. Yeah, so Suzanne Nossel has done a whole lot of cool things. Right now, she's the CEO of Pan America, which is a leading human rights and free expression organization, if you're not aware of them already. Uh, she was also the chief operating officer of Human Rights Watch and the executive director of Amnesty International USA. She was also the deputy assistant secretary of state for international organizations during the first term of the Obama administration, aka we're going to be talking to her about the U.S., but also what What's going on abroad as well. She's also the author of Dare to Speak, which is now out in paperback. And Dare to Speak is a playbook for navigating and defending free speech and free expression while also cultivating a more inclusive public culture. And just for full disclosure, in a free speech world, I am on the board of Pan America with Suzanne, who's the head of Pan America. So we have a long friendship and professional relationship. Uh, which in no way colors the conversation, given that whatever will come up now has come up multiple times in the past, and I'm sure will come up multiple times in the future. So we're looking forward to this conversation, and I hope you are too. Suzanne Nossel, it's great to talk to you today. I think the day we are recording this is the uh, paperback publication of your book. Uh, so there's there's that congratulations, which will be an evergreen congratulations. Um, Thank you. So I wanted to ask, apropos of that, uh, you wrote that and published it kind of in the midst of Trumplandia. Uh, although, of course, you've been thinking about these issues about how do we balance sort of free speech and a and a society that is not completely unraveling at the seams. But I guess the question is a year later in a somewhat different climate, you know, a, a, a pseudo post pandemic post Trump, or at least 
post-Trump for now world. Has everything been solved? Is it all great? Are all the issues, are we fine now? You know, hardly. I mean, I actually, it's funny because I would say because the Trump administration became such a major focus for us in terms of combating the threats to press freedom, the effort to denigrate the truth, the rise of uh, fake news and disinformation, you know, it seemed like we had our agenda set for us and we didn't have to make the argument about why the issues we worked on were central to the fate of our democracy. And there was a great sense of urgency to everything. We sued Trump under the First Amendment for his threats and acts of retaliation against journalists and the media. And so he was a a kind of major locus for us uh, the entire time that he was in office and even going back to his campaign in 2016. And so when we contemplated the prospect of the Trump administration coming to an end, we sort of thought, gosh, are our issues going to really retreat in prominence? You know, are we going to have to work a lot harder to explain to people why the work we do is relevant? And you know, actually, you know, those concerns to the degree that we had them were really misplaced and have not come to fruition. You know, we found both here in the U.S. and around the globe, it seems like our issues only become more salient. You know, I'd say in terms of the crisis in free speech, you know, and that's not to mention what's uh, been happening around the globe, and we can get to that. Uh, you know, the, the crisis is unabated, and I'd say the advice and, and focus of my book, which is really about the challenge of how to reconcile the drive toward a more equitable, inclusive, diverse society with robust protections for free speech, that battle is just being waged day in and day out with incidents, you know, an incident we wrote about a person who put out a diversity, a statement on anti-Semitism from a, a children's book, collective organization being fired from her position or essentially pushed out uh, after doing so because the organization came under fire for not referencing other kinds of bigotry alongside anti-Semitism. Another incident where a book event in Texas was canceled at the very last minute by, you know, seemingly on orders of the governor or the lieutenant governor because of the content of the book. And so it definitely feels as though these tensions are unresolved. It's sort of the advice that I am trying to offer in the book. And yes, uh, the paperback is now out. It's Dare to Speak, Defending Free Speech for All. And it goes into a detailed blueprint of how I believe we can uh, begin to calm these tensions and sort of live together in our diverse, digitized, and divided society without compromising free speech. And I I certainly feel like it's a message that's needed right now. So... You know, so the crisis continues. I'm curious, you know, you were saying that you were wondering whether you're going to really have to make a strong argument about the work that PEN America is doing. And it sounds like the conditions of crisis are here with us. What about on the side of public sentiment? Like, do you see a lot of urgency and public sentiment around this? As I, I ask because, you know, just in my own cohort, um, I see a lot of discourse around free speech sort of out on Twitter, out in, you know, mainstream media and others, but just in my own sort of small circle of friends, I feel like the topic doesn't come up. And I wonder how much it is of concern to uh, people these days. What do you think? Yeah, I think there are a couple of phenomena at work. For One of the impetuses behind my book was concern that for a rising generation of young people in this country, and I would uh, include students up through people probably in their 30s, the idea of free speech, I think, has been somewhat clouded over. And that is you know, partially because of the strong emphasis that that those generations place on eradicating the stubborn legacy of racism and other forms of bigotry in our society, and the sense that there can be a trade-off between trying to foster an inclusive culture, uh, respecting people, protecting the vulnerable, uh, rooting out bigotry, being intolerant of hatefulness, stereotyping, and discrimination, that those ideals and goals can be in tension with the principle of free speech. And for many younger people that I've encountered, 
the sense is, look, they do believe in free speech, but if it comes down to a choice between safeguarding an individual, particularly maybe somebody from a, a group that's been historically disadvantaged, uh, you know, if, if, if in order to make that person a full part of society, prevent that person from experiencing feelings of denigration, if that requires some curtailment of free speech rights, that that's a trade-off worth making. And that's uh, you know, the kind of rebalancing that we need to do in order to correct this kind of unfinished business of our legacy of racism in this country. And so I think that's why you don't see a lot of young people kind of waving a banner for free speech. And to the extent that they do, they tend to be sort of center right, uh, you know, and people who are pushing back against what they see as a culture of political correctness or wokeness and kind of waving free speech uh, as a banner in an effort, in a sense, to safeguard their ability to say whatever they want, to offend other people, to break taboos. And you know, to me, that was very concerning because I've always seen free speech as a cause that really is above politics that transcends the left and the right. I'm very cognizant of just how important free speech protections have historically been to social justice causes and movements throughout the years. Uh, and that ultimately it's, it's the vulnerable and the powerless who need the protection even more and rely on those safeguards the most and depend on constraining the ability of those who are in positions of power and authority to curtail their sentiment, to quash dissent. And so a big motivation for me in writing my book was to explain how those who are committed to driving forward a social justice agenda have a stake in free speech and why they ought to see free speech rights as part and parcel of what they're fighting for. Whether they call it free speech or not is sort of less important to me than whether they understand what the risks are of empowering, whether it's a government or a university administration or a corporate or a corporation with additional authority and discretion to police speech. And so I agree with you. I think it's not always framed in terms of free speech, but you know, certainly the debates over whether it's online harassment, how much power and leeway the likes of Facebook and Twitter ought to have in our society, you know, what should be the role of critical race theory uh, in our educational system? You know, these issues are raging. Uh, and I think free speech really is at the heart of them. History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. That may be a Mark Twain quote, but it's just as true today as when he originally said it. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics is a podcast that compares and contrasts history to the current events of today. Host Bruce Carlson has recently done deep dives on fascinating topics like the fall of the Soviet Union, which sets the stage for today's geopolitics, the man who was in prison and still won a million votes for the presidency, and the mystery behind George Washington's involvement, or lack thereof, in the Bill of Rights. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics offers deep context to all these historic stories, especially those that you may think you know well, and is particularly adept at relating them to current events. So don't miss out. Listen to My History Can Beat Up Your Politics on all platforms. Hey, it's Emma. They say you should learn something new every day. It's good advice, but with so much to do in your daily life, how are you going to make the time to learn and stay curious about our world? Well, with Everything Everywhere Daily, you can easily make that goal an actual reality. Everything Everywhere Daily is one of the world's most popular daily education podcasts and a top three history podcast. In about 10 minutes, you can learn something new every day. The show covers history, science, geography, mathematics, and technology, as well as biographies from some of the world's most interesting people. Fans of the show are so passionate that even work to join the Completionist Club, the group of dedicated listeners who have listened to every single one of the show's more than a thousand and counting episodes. All of the episodes are informative, interesting, and best of all, always under 15 minutes. So go ahead, learn something new every single day with Everything Everywhere Daily. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, I will say comedy, it's interesting. Comedy is, I do think, is the, you know, supposed to push the line, push towards the lines of the medium. There are more people now who will let you know if they think you went over the line than ever before. Don't I know it. I mean, you have to yeah. feel the same yeah. way about comedy. Yeah. 
but they keep moving the lines in for no reason. Right. There's a creepy PC thing out there that really bothers me. But you I, can also screw up. Yes, you, you can, can also screw up. That was comedian Jerry Seinfeld and journalist David Remnick on Late Night with Seth Meyers in 2015, sharing about what they feel you're not allowed to say anymore. You've done a lot of work, both personally and through Penn, on balancing sort of what can feel antithetical positions, right? That, that on the one hand, you have uh, an aggressive defense of free speech, which is obviously in the United States embedded to some degree in the Constitution and has been an endless source of debate about what its parameters are. And then the flip side being um, a culture maybe more prevalent today, but it, it's had moments in the past where the reaction to certain types of speech is is extreme and strong, and and there there is a desire often to silence speech that causes harm or engenders pain. Uh, so how do you how do you drive that balance? I mean, I guess that the the easy one is like today's critical race theory on the one hand, woke versus the other, one side trying to silence the other side, and you know just deciding which of those is potentially more problematic than the other. And different people obviously come down in, in different ways about which silencing is uh, more tolerable than other silencing. But I mean, are you absolutist about this, that, that basically speech needs to be preserved irrespective of effect, um, effect not the fire in a crowded theater effect, right? Harm, actual harmful action, I think most of us agree, is probably speech that that doesn't serve the common good and and isn't amenable to the same protections, but separate from that. Yeah, I mean, I'd say I'm something close to an absolutist when it comes to government curbs, bans, prohibitions, punishments for speech. I, I think our First Amendment here in this country, which is the world's most protective standard and goes beyond the level of safeguard, you know, for example, in other democracies like Canada, the UK, or Germany, I support that system. And I, I have come in my work to see that anytime there is a proposal for, you know, why it might be wise to extend the power of government to allow a kind of deeper reaching into dictating the parameters of our discourse or declaring certain speech out of bounds or regulating how private platforms moderate speech. I tend to think the disadvantages and the risks outweigh the benefits and particularly so because, you know, of, of just the, the vicissitudes of who is in power. And, you know, the Trump administration for me was a very potent illustration of the risks of extending government power. I mean, we saw with President Trump, I think he was willing to go to the limits of the law and beyond in order to squelch his critics. And if the First Amendment hadn't constrained him, I think he would have gone a lot farther. I think he would have put people in uh, jail or tried to prosecute them for libel or defamation. And, you know, it was the, the constitutional protections and the law and the people around him who stopped him short of doing that in most instances. But, uh, you know, certainly the, the will was there and, you know, he's not alone. When we think about officials at the state level and just how ready they seem to be to curtail, for example, protest rights or to dictate what should be on curricula. So I'm fairly absolutist when it comes to that. In terms, though, of what norms should govern in our society or what the rules should be for a platform like Twitter or Facebook or how a publishing house should make decisions about you know, what books to put out or how to respond to an uprising among their staff. There, I think there are you know, less, fewer hard and fast rules and the determinations become more complex because the, the risks of extending authority are sort of less tangible and palpable than they are when the power in question, you know, has the ability to throw people in jail, uh, you know, prosecute people and, and, and use the force of the state to suppress speech. You know, that's not a play when you're talking about how to regulate speech, for example, on a college campus. And it really is a spectrum because, of course, there are 
certain types of speech that we all, you know, implicitly or explicitly recognize are, are out of bounds. We've always had taboos. I think taboos are important to a functioning society. You know, none of us says everything that comes to mind. There's, you know, self-censorship is sort of a daily uh, uh, corrective and, and set of controls that we all operate by uh, and, and we need to in order to live together with one another, whether that's our families, our, our coworkers, or people out on the street. And so the question then becomes, well, where do you draw the line? How much self-censorship is too much? And you know, I think we've definitely seen instances over the last couple of years, uh, you know, a feeling among a lot of people that uh, you know, the, the kind of uh, retributive consequences of certain types of speech are such that there are whole categories of discussion, of, uh, opinions, topics, controversies that are effectively off limits because to wade into them risks unleashing vitriol that can be, you know, emotionally harmful, career ending, uh, you know, the, the basis for lasting stigma. And, you know, I think that goes too far, but where exactly to draw the line between, uh, you know, a, a kind of healthy level of self-censorship and, and social taboos and, you know, a, a kind of extreme sense of suppression of ideas uh, is a difficult one. And that's why in my book, I, I outline sort of this interlocking set of principles that I think together are necessary to govern how this works. And it includes you know, elements on different sides. I, I call for standing up for speech that you disagree with, uh, for finding ways to express difficult ideas, but also for conscientiousness with language and a kind of duty of care uh, when, you know, particularly for those who have powerful platforms. And I, I really sort of believe ultimately it's that whole set of values that is, is necessary to underpin a robust discourse, but one that, you know, does not devolve into, uh, you know, kind of hateful, denigrating uh, environment in which bigotry flows freely. I like this balance uh, that you're pointing out between self-censorship, like we, which you said always exists. Um, I think that's a healthy point to make because I think sometimes we forget that, right? That some self-censorship is just fine uh, versus the duty of care you have to, to choose your speech wisely. Um, and I also, I want to come back to the retribution bit, but before that, we've let this topic pass us by, I think a couple of times now, such a hot button issue, the critical race theory stuff. I feel like it's on everyone's minds right now. Where do you stand on that with the laws being passed, banning critical race theory in classrooms? And just and one thing on that, I mean, given that we're in this world now, and this leads into the critical race theory question of language and reconsidering its effects. And America has done this probably more than any other culture, right? When, when, when there is a, a juncture of conflict, uh, find a different nomenclature, use a different word or invent a different word. But the interesting thing about self-censorship, it, it, it has a kind of a negative connotation. It assumes that you're not saying something that you would say if you could say it, rather than what you're really talking about, which is the mindfulness of the effect of words on those who are receiving them, right? Um, as opposed to shouting, I guess, alone in your room or singing in your shower, where you probably don't have to be so mindful of your words unless you've got really thin walls. But this, it's, it's not really self-censorship, right? It's not like, if I could say all of this exactly as I want to, I would. It's more that the recognition that words have an effect, that words have power, and to kind of choose them mindfully, right? The duty of care part. So. Anyway, I'm just I'm, I'm reacting to the self-censorship part because it makes it seem. No, you're right. I mean, self-censorship has a very negative connotation. And yet I think it's really hard to draw a line between, you know, what is what I call conscientiousness with language which is exactly as you say. It's being aware of your audience and particularly in, a, in such a diverse society, the cognizance that that audience may include people very different from you, people from different races, ages, uh, you know, who have different disabilities, uh, linguistic backgrounds, and the ways in which words can affect them very differently, at, you know, which I think is kind of part of part and parcel of citizenship in our society. And yet, you know, it does mean there are certain things you'd like to say. I mean, I'm sure, you know, I have this experience often where I, I kind of contemplate something, uh, you know, it could be about 
geopolitics. It could be about gender relations. It could be, uh, you know, about a, a political incident where, you know, there's something I, I'd like to say that I sort of think is an interesting point, but I feel like the risk of it being misconstrued is so great. And obviously it depends a lot on who that audience is. If I'm sitting among, you know, four people and it's, uh, you know, my husband and a couple of close friends, I may feel like I have a lot more leeway than in front of an audience of several hundred people. And I think that's, I think that's right. And I don't think it's, uh, it should be viewed so negatively. Maybe we need a new term that, you know, somehow kind of brings these two things together. I don't know if there's a crisp, definition uh, of, the, of the line between sort of responsible conscientiousness and uh, censorious self, you know, kind of self-restraint. I like the term wise speech, although I'm totally cribbing that from Buddhism. <laughs> so on the, the critical race theory stuff, as Emma said, where do we, where do we go with all this? You know, a year and a half ago, pre sort of the summer of 2020, uh, Critical race theory, critical legal theory was known. It's been around. It's not like this is a, a sudden thing, but it's eruption into contemporary discourse and consciousness is is pretty sudden. I mean, it's basically gone from you know one of many, I guess we'll use the word modalities within academia, particularly, and some small areas of, of intellectual discourse to this lightning rod of public discussion, acrimony, debate. Yeah, I mean, look, it's a concerted campaign to label speech and teaching about race under this critical race theory rubric as a way to discredit it. And so that's why we suddenly see, you know, this term that was, you know, I learned about in law school and, you know, it was sort of one of many different sort of sets of theories that you encountered in, in the course of a legal education, you know, now it's become this kind of shibboleth. And, you know, I understand at some level the feeling that's, that people have that, you know, we're in this moment of difficult racial reckoning and looking at historical events through a new light and seeing parts of stories that, you know, were long shrouded in secrecy or deliberately suppressed and we're bringing that to light and that it's important but that it also you know can kind of cross over into casting our whole national history in very negative terms and you know if people are schooled this way you know do they lose sight of you know what is strong and, 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 and brilliant and distinctive about, for example, the US Constitution or the Bill of Rights or how the country was founded. So, the, you know, it, it does, does the pendulum, in other words, string so far in the other direction that any hope of kind of patriotism or national unity or pride is lost and that, you know, that that would be a, a real loss and that part of our cohesion as a country you know, may depend upon, uh, you know, having a certain amount of faith in our system. And so if, if the, you know, if the fundamentals of that system are kind of shot through with criticism, you know, how do we hold together? So I, you know, I understand that line of questioning, but I really believe that this effort to legislate curriculum and try to dictate what can be taught in schools and universities is, dangerous and totalitarian. It sort of smacks of these memory control efforts that have been adopted in Russia and Eastern Europe and China where counter narratives are suppressed and punished. I mean, I've met with many writers from around the world who have suffered the consequences of trying to tell history as they saw it and, you know, wound up in, in jail or in obscurity as a result. And so I find it extremely troubling to see in our own country going down this path. And well, for us, it's partly going down a path we've been down, right? I mean, the whole point of the Scopes trial 100 years ago was you were not allowed to teach scientific evolution in certain school districts. And, and that ended up in legal action and firing. And, you know, it was a bit of a turning point in in that. So in some sense, we are revisiting 
earlier elements you know it's not like everything's been hunky-dory and everybody could teach whatever they could teach and say whatever they could yeah, say. these tensions have been a lot I mean, one of the most striking aspects of course is that it's the republican party that you know as we were saying a few minutes ago uh sort of claims to be the standard bearer for free speech they proclaimed at the republican national convention last summer you know we are the party of free speech and then you know here they go from state house to state house introducing these bills that would dictate and, and gag curriculum. And, you know, it's, it's not a matter of, I think what's really important is you don't have to subscribe to critical race theory to believe that having legislators, uh, you know, hand down what ideas are banned in the classroom is a dangerous thing. I mean, I am, you know, don't consider myself a particular proponent of critical race theory, but I, I'm a great proponent of having teachers and educators be the ones to decide what ideas to introduce in the classroom. And, and the notion that nothing should be off limits, that there is uh, ought to be scope for exploring the full breadth of ideas and that, you know, we're kind of trying to redline certain ideas, you know, actually elevates them, reifies them, makes people more curious about them, and also soars, sows an enormous amount of division and I think there are ways of reconciling this. We, I was at Monticello just over the weekend, not having been there in more than 20 years. And, you know, they've done an enormous amount to incorporate the history and legacy of slavery into the way that everything is presented at Monticello. And it's a radically different story that is being told from the one that, you know, I absorbed a couple of decades ago upon first visiting Jefferson's homestead. And yet they've done so in a way that doesn't completely cast out, you know, the, the sides of his legacy that, uh, you know, some people are very proud of, uh, you know, uh, his role writing the Declaration of Independence, you know, that's not lost, but the stories of the slaves are brought forward as well. And so, you know, my hope is we can get nationally to a point where we can kind of talk about all of this in its nuance and have scope for people with very different sets of beliefs to have some mutual respect for one another. But I think, you know, for the moment, the kind of the pendulum has really swung in a, a dangerous direction. Hey, everybody, I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. We're the hosts of Political Breakdown, a show that pulls back the curtain on the people and forces driving politics in the Golden State from KQED in San Francisco. And now, ahead of the 2024 election, we are bringing you even more. More conversations with the top movers and shakers at the state capitol and in national politics. But the dyslexia was the greatest gift that ever happened to me. Nothing was rote, nothing was linear. I had to work around things, work differently, see the world differently. And I say that to young people and say, know how important your participation is. And I think it's the time for this generation to put forward new voices. More reporting with analysis. It's been a very good session for organized labor. but Hot there was labor summer. Hot labor summer. It's turning out to be a nice fall as well. More politics with personality. I've sweat election day my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> we, we hear that. Political breakdown daily. Every weekday, we'll break down what's happening and why it matters. With news that informs, surprises, and maybe even inspires you. Political Breakdown goes daily starting January 8th. The government of Kenya pledged to end gender-based violence by 2026. The Ministry of Health in Uganda is trying to eradicate yellow fever. It's ambitious to make these kinds of pledges, but it is much harder to achieve these lofty goals. Are these leaders really delivering on these promises for women and girls? Tune into a new season of The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a podcast from Foreign Policy, as reporters across Africa meet courageous women holding leaders accountable in various sectors, including healthcare, startups, and the government. Listen to Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women wherever you get your podcasts. Let's just start with a basic definitional question. When you hear critical race theory over and over again, what should people understand? How do you define CRT? So... 
I first want to just make a distinction between CRT, which is a theoretical framework that I learned in graduate school uh, or and read about in graduate school versus teaching about race and racism in American history critically. So critical race theory is a framework. It's a theoretical framework that was developed in the 1980s by legal scholars to help us understand um, how it is that structural and racial disparities endure in our society and how that is actually engendered in some of our laws and policies. And so the idea was to get us to think uh, systemically as opposed to just thinking that racism manifests um, by individuals just mistreating each other, that there are actual structures in our society that create these different kinds of racial gaps and racial disparities economically um, in terms of housing, in terms of education. That's a theoretical framework. I think what we're talking about today, though, is some contestation and conflict over how you teach about race, racial hierarchies, critically racism in schools and society. And so the two are being conflated. That was University of California, Berkeley sociology professor Prudence Carter defining critical race theory on PBS NewsHour in 2021. You know, I've been thinking going over your work, like what a rare balanced voice. And it doesn't seem that difficult to be, to look at something like critical race theory and see the distinctions and see the nuance and like come to a rational opinion about it. But for some reason, it, it seems like completely impossible as far as, uh, you know, our collective voice. Um, I mean, how do you keep yourself, uh, you know, balanced and, and resist the lure of knee-jerk partisan politics? That's something that comes to mind for you individually? I mean, I think part of it really comes from actually conversations with people. And it's so easy to caricature a position when you're just encountering it via Twitter or pieces on Medium. And, you know, I'd say one of the most important things for me foundationally, when there first began to be these college campus speech dust-ups, you know, at Middlebury or Berkeley or Yale some years ago, I'd say the impulse of free speech defenders and sort of people, you know, in roughly my age cohort was incredibly dismissive toward the students. It's like, oh, these coddled, you know, snowflakes, they can't take it, you know, they're, they're so fragile, they're lashing out, you know, they're, uh, they're giving into totalitarian impulses. And what, what we did at Penn was actually go around and start interviewing students and meeting with students. And when you did that, you saw, you know, gosh, these young people are incredibly thoughtful. They have a set of values. They're trying to confront some of the detritus of what has been handed down to them by previous generations in terms of racial divisions, uh, gender-based divisions, inequities, uh, you know, kind of under and lack of opportunity for certain segments of society. And, you know, they're really sort of trying to come to grips with that and think about what it means for the functioning of a university or a classroom. And it's really hard to uh, argue with that project and that endeavor. Now, what I always thought was they, that insofar as their efforts crossed over into banning or punishing speech, that they were sort of misguided, that that was the wrong approach. I found actually, if you entered into conversations or talked it through, you know, their purpose was not to curtail speech. That was not, uh, you know, what they were after. It was sort of a byproduct of this groping toward, you know, how do we make the campus an environment where non-traditional students who don't uh, come from the background for which the institution was founded, you know, decades or centuries ago, so that they can feel you know, truly and fully included and, uh, you know, enabled in every way to partake of what's happening here. You know, that's what they were after. And so the, the, the encroachments on free speech were sort of a byproduct of that. And so once I understood that, it kind of gave me a lens, you know, through which to look at all these conflicts. And I, you know, I, I look at it the same way on the other side. I mean, even in the critical race theory debate, you know, there's a lot of uproar and outrage on the left about these repressive efforts. And I agree with that. I think they're extremely wrongheaded and hypocritical and kind of taking us down a dangerous path. And yet 
you know, I, I always understood critical race theory as sort of an effort at a corrective, you know, a, a, a challenging set of precepts that was intended to, you know, make us rethink and question, uh, you know, much of how our society is set up, but not as a, a kind of religion or dogma. And, you know, so I think to the extent that people are worried that it sort of goes too far and, you know, erases everything that's positive about American history, you know, I, I, you know, if I believe that was happening, I'd be worried about that too. I don't think that's what people are after. I don't think that's what the effect is here. But I think trying to see, well, what is the, the kernel of a general, a genuine concern on either side of any of these debates is sort of what helps unlock you know, a sense of nuance and how, how, how we can find the common ground. There is also the, the timeless irony of trying to ban something just gives it a lot more power <laughs> in terms of all the attention being paid. But um. on that, like the banning part, you know, we talk very uh, emotionally and and take very seriously these divisions within the United States. You've done a lot of work both in the State Department and obviously at Penn on the global context. And sometimes when you look at these debates in the United States in light of uh, speech that that meets not just outrage or counterpoint, you know, agitation, but actual life and limb consequences. If you, you know, Emma's in, in Greece now, th that neighborhood, if you write a column criticizing Erdogan in Turkey, I mean, not in Greece, anyone can write a column in Greece. Next Greece. door. <laughs> uh, you, you, you lose your license to publish, you could be thrown in jail, you go north into Belarus, where the, obviously recently the one of the main critics of the government was you know, plucked off of an intercepted airplane. And these are just two of the most recent feelings where speech in much of the rest of the world, obviously Penn's done this over and over, over again in Myanmar and in, in, in parts of China and Egypt, you know, is met with uh, not just the loss of the freedom to speak, but the loss of fundamental freedoms being thrown into jail and, and the loss of life. Doesn't that make the United, some of these debates in the United States seem awfully, um, if not twee, then, you know, oh, poor, you know, poor Americans, you're, you know, you're debating about what framework you want to articulate American history in, and every and everybody's debating it. And at least for now, the, you know, the consequence might be social canceling at worst, but even that's rare and and extreme. Whereas in these other parts of the world, you know, speech is literally a matter of life and death. So should, shouldn't we be focusing more on that and a little bit less on our own navel gazing? You know, I'd say sort of yes and no. I mean, I do think I, I in the book uh, Dare to Speak, I talk about that context and you know it's it's just such a the rest of the world offers such a vivid illustration of the dangers going down the path of extending the powers of government to police speech you know you just sort of take a moment to look at what the situation is uh in places where they don't have safeguards like a china or iran or you know increasingly democracies like turkey and India, and uh, you can just see the folly of wanting to, uh, you know, hand to government uh, the, the authority and discretion to, you know, police something like hate speech, which is, you know, a notion that people have tender here in this country, calling into question whether the First Amendment goes too far. And, you know, it's just you've got to remind them, you know, where this leads if you, if you um, were to cut back that uh, that constitutional restraint on the power of government to police speech, so I think that's part of it. But I, you know, I do think absolutely in terms of the most serious concerns for free speech, you know, they are around the world, and a lot of it emanates from China. And I'm really kind of gratified to see, just in the last few months. I'd say the U.S. government and other institutions beginning to wake up to. I think this Chinese paradigm and the ways in which it's making its influence felt not just within the mainland, not just in, you know in Hong Kong where we've seen this you know absolutely heartbreaking clampdown on you know what used to be one of the freest places in Asia and just a uh, such a bright spot for democracy and the free flow of ideas you know has now just been completely 
enshrouded and is operating on the same terms as the mainland. And it's terrifying. We've seen, uh, you know, writers that we work with fleeing into exile under pretty desperate circumstances. And so that is, you know, all devastating. And it's a major focus for us. We're seeing this phenomenon. You touched on Roman Protasevich in Belarus, this, what I think of as the long arm of the authoritarianism governments that now are not just uh, uh, Muslim speech within their borders, but reaching across geographic bounds to go after their critics wherever they may be, so that even exile no longer offers the uh, safety and security that it once did. So, all, you know, all sorts of really alarming phenomenon and sort of the spreading of authoritarianism, you know, both to new countries, former democracies that are showing these authoritarian tendencies and intensification of repression in places like Iran and China, new tools of repression uh, through surveillance and facial recognition and uh, monitoring of the online space. So it's a pretty kind of terrifying environment. That said, I do think what happens here in this country still matters. I think one of the reasons that the pace of repression around the world has accelerated over the last few years is sort of the vacuum of leadership coming from the United States and the West and the loss of credibility of uh, you know, Washington as a uh, force for press freedom and truth and free expression and in support of dissidents around the world during the Trump years. We really lost some ground, I think others Sort of, you know, in, in other democracies, the, the, the sense of stigma associated with going after journalists or raiding the offices of a social media company really lessened. And there was a kind of unmooring of the set of norms that operated in countries that considered themselves, you know, proudly freedom respecting. And, and so I think that's very unfortunate. And it's one of the reasons why. I do believe a robust defense of free speech in this country remains extremely important. I think it reverberates globally. Yeah, not to sound too rah-rah American, but it is true that when I moved here to Greece, uh, I was shocked at how much of the news cycle was devoted to American politics. Like I would say 50%. And it's not like Greece like doesn't have enough problems to pay attention to just on its own. Um, and in the same way, you know, when there was the insurrection on January 6th at the Capitol, it was like people were glued to their TVs here because it was the United States. They couldn't believe what was happening in the United States. And I think having lived the you know, rest of my life in the States before now, that was uh, that was really surprising to me. And I think sometimes Americans do take that for granted that, what we do in the States does reverberate, like you said. I wonder whether um, that's going to change, though. I mean, some of this was structural, right? The United States had a certain amount of power in throughout the 20th century. It still has immense power, no doubt about it. It's just the relative position slash the world of self-developing multiple nodes. I mean, it's a fine line between setting an example which I think you're talking about, Suzanne, meaning the more that we can practice whatever it is we preach or just practice whatever it is we believe, the more the example of that is, is palliative and powerful. The problem was that mix, and you know this from, from being in state, at the State Department, in the government, is when that kind of crosses over to sort of coercive preaching, right? Follow our, follow our mores and examples because we're telling you to. Um, not because we're living it and it has a, a beneficial effect that others might want to emulate. I mean, I, I wonder how one does that, right? Or how one does that effectively, that that line. This is, a, I guess, a question about human rights policy in general. Um, you know, we, is this something we're trying to lead by example or is it something that we're trying to use our own, the, the, the coercive power of our state internationally to try to force others to adopt a moral framework? Yeah. Look, I think that the balance has on that has really shifted in that, you know, years ago, US foreign assistance was this powerful form of leverage over governments. And, you know, we felt relatively free to use it. And now, you know, a couple of things have changed. I mean, first of all, uh, you know, the, the dominance of our foreign assistance and trade relationships relative to those of others has diminished. And so, you know, whereas 
the overwhelming number of countries around the world you know, used to count the U.S. as their number one trading relationship. You know, now in a lot of places, that has shifted over to China. And so the balance of power is different. I also think you know, the uh, view toward what are seen as more coercive efforts to shape behavior has changed. And there's a, a quite a um, biting backlash against that. And so, you know, the power of example, uh, you know, it's not just example, it's also convening, it's kind of collaborative norm setting and norm enforcement. There are all kinds of ways that the U.S. can lead sort of short of coercion uh, through a sort of rallying and energizing and uh, offering thought leadership, driving forward ideas, you know, providing inspiration. And I've, I've seen this happen and it does work. And I think for other democracies, you know, in a, you know, in the environment, say during the Clinton and Obama administrations, there was a lot of appeal to that. You know, it was something that they could sell to their own populations that offered a kind of halo, a good governance effect that they were participating. And there was a sort of virtuous momentum that built up as a result that really kind of ground to a halt during the Trump administration where Washington was not looked to for that, uh, you know, as that type of lotus star. And I think it, it can be built up, but it's also the case that a lot has shifted in the interim, including, you know, most particularly the position of China and also the recognition that, you know, the kind of turnabout that the U.S. underwent during the Trump years was so dramatic. I don't think the world can unsee that, you know, can now not you know, move forward with the recognition that everything we stand for, you know, might just turn on a dime, you know, if the right con confluence of, of polit political forces conspire. And so, you know, that's, that's a big setback, I think, for U.S. leadership. Uh, you know, not insuperable, but very significant. I think it puts, you know, also a particular premium on our own behavior because, you know, acts of sort of misbehavior and deviation from norms are no longer seen as, you know, uh, at the margins, but rather as, a, you know, an impulse that can take over in dangerous ways. Although perhaps it can actually be more of a positive, beneficial reminder to Americans going forward that we are as susceptible as any other group of human beings to our worst impulses uh, and to be more humble about the ease, how, how easy it is to slip into those, you know, that, that there was, there was a degree to which American stance to itself and to the world had a holier than thou quality to it, right? That we figured out all these things and we're now going to, export a model uh, that has worked to perfection. And that had some, as you pointed out, hugely beneficial effects, um, but it also carried with it a degree of arrogance and its own blowback, right? You know, people kind of don't like to be lectured to and they don't like to be condescended to. So maybe it's maybe this will be a recipe for a little more humble preaching, you know, the awareness that we are not ourselves immune from the very things that we are urging others to be mindful of. I mean, do you think that's a, a possible constructive formula as we wrap up? Yeah, I think so. I, I think there's probably, you know, now as officials from the Biden administration sort of move around the world and talk with foreign counterparts, there's a kind of relatability uh, that they have and, and humility that they bring, you know, given what this country has gone through and the ways, you know, we were brought low, you know, not just by the, the Trump years, but also the, the pandemic uh, and our inability, you know, for many months to get a grip on it. Um, you know, I think these things have been sort of levelers in a way, and we're not the dominant hyperpower in the way that we were in the 1990s. I think you know, it's more a sort of a set of countries grappling against uh, an evolving set of challenges and threats. And so I, I think that has the potential to strengthen the bonds between the U.S. and its allies around the world, um, you know, in, in just bringing them closer 
closer together uh, and, and, and less of a sense of the U.S. Um, you know, having this overweening power and self-confidence. Well, thank you, Suzanne, for a conversation that could go on for days and will go on for days and days and days as, as the world continues to evolve and you continue to be a, uh, a powerful and potent voice. There's a lot we didn't touch on, but which you know we could at another point. And uh, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. Okay, so that hour went by really fast. Um, it's such a rich topic. There are so many things that we could have touched on, uh, but we didn't get to. One of them being social media. We didn't get to talk about sort of everyone's favorite person to hate, Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook and Twitter and how those platforms are affecting free speech. And there was something else in particular that I wanted to ask her about, but didn't get to, which is that retribution piece that she mentioned. It seems like one of the reasons why it's so scary to say something, say on Twitter, is that it's not like there's gonna be a crowd that arises that says, you know what, let's, let's forgive this person or let's give them the benefit of the doubt or let's preach patience right now. Like obviously that is not going to happen. And, um, you know, it just occurs to me in a society that's trending that direction, is that naturally going to be a society who wants to have uh, a more controlled freedom of expression, that wants to have harsher measures and, and harsher strictures? One of the effects of this, obviously, is if you are legitimately concerned that a misstep today will, will be a life sentence on your speech record, you're going to be that much more careful and maybe genuinely self-censorious, self-censoring, you might also be self-censorious about what it is you say when you say it. I guess the question is one, back to this question of being really mindful of what you say, how bad is that? That we should all think twice, thrice, and then some about the potential long-term implications of what we say that has a public record, that is recorded, and then there is this question of what's the statute of limitations, right? If, at least when you commit a crime and you serve time, in theory, you're supposed to have paid your debt for whatever you did. Is there any, is there any debt paying when it comes to Twitter missteps and things one says in public that have, that have been deemed egregious? Do you, is it a five-year period, a seven-year? I think we're gonna have to work all this out, right? Because there's some awareness that it shouldn't be a life sentence, but there should be consequence and trying to figure out how you establish those parameters. We're in the really, really early stages of all this. And in the criminal jurisdiction, I mean, there's certainly a difference between committing a crime at 16 and committing a crime at 45. And that is not a distinction that exists right now in the you know, realm of public affairs vis-a-vis -vis saying something that is uh, even definitely offensive. I do think that it ends up being potent about these conversations is, at least from the US perspective, and we touched on this with Suzanne, most of this right now, in fact, almost all of it right now, unfolds in a civil context. So you, you, whatever missteps, yes, they can have massive career consequences, they probably can have personal consequences, but not yet are you going to jail. You're, you're not losing life and limb, your family is not being shunned, your, your entire ecosystem of friends and community are not being investigated. And I think as long as this remains part of the really rough and tumble, and sometimes rough and tumble, and yes, a deeply harmful way, but not in the harmful way that we just referred to. You're not being thrown into jail. Your friends are not being questioned and rounded up. Uh, your Twitter followers are not all being flagged for future free speech abuses by some government agency. Uh, I think that still remains a positive sign of a robust society, even, if, even as it's really difficult to live in the midst of it. Yeah, I was going to say that too, Zachary, that there's something about that hyperactivity that's comforting, right? The, the, the lack of that debate would be something to truly worry about. Um, not that these issues aren't important, but just I think it's, it's good to, you know, see the forest through the trees, even throughout all of this uh, intense debate around free speech. Absolutely. So I think on this note, uh, at least for this week, one thing that we can answer the hypothetical and rhetorical question of what could go right. One thing that I think is going right is the continuation of this incredibly noisy, messy culture in the United States, at least, uh, that engenders 
a lot of social discourse, a lot of social turmoil, but maybe in the greater arc of things, a lot of positive social change. We'll have to see about that one, but that at least is a direction in which I can point. So I want to thank everybody for listening this week. We will continue these conversations ad infinitum. And so for Emma Varva-Lucas and for me, Zachary Carabell, and for the Progress Network, thanks once again. To find out more information about the Progress Network and what could go right, visit theprogressnetwork.org. You can also sign up for our weekly newsletter to stay up to date with everything happening with the Progress Network. If you like the show, please tell a friend, share an episode, or leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. What Could Go Right is hosted by Zachary Carabell and me, Emma Varvalukas. We're produced by Andrew Steven. Jordan Aaron is our production coordinator, executive produced by Jeff Ombro and the Podglomerate. Thanks so much for listening.